Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. We're here today for a special episode of SaaS Stories with Brianne Kimmel, our network leader, and Christoph Jans, founder of Point9 Capital. Uh, Christoph, Brianne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Hey, hi Eric, thanks for having me. Christoph, why don't you get into what is Point9 Capital, uh, what is the thesis, and how do you perhaps differentiate from other SaaS-specific firms? Yeah, sure. So... Point nine is an early stage venture capital fund. We're based in Berlin, but we in, invest all over Europe. And we also have a number of investments in countries outside of Europe, in primarily in the US and in Canada. So we're very agnostic when it comes to the location. And we, we think and, and have seen that great companies can really be started anywhere. At the same time, we're pretty focused on two sectors, one being SaaS, you mentioned that already, and the other one being online marketplaces. And we're very much also focused on on being seed investors. So anything from pre-seed to seed or late seed day, SaaS has become a pretty big industry. So just being focused on SaaS is not really a differentiation anymore. I think pretty much anybody, any investor invests in SaaS nowadays, but we, we think because we've been doing this for almost 10 years now, we have developed quite a bit of expertise and, and, and knowledge and, and the reputation over time and, and happy to talk about that in some more detail later on. Cool. Well, well, Christoph, I, uh, how do you sort of map the SaaS world? What are sort of the sub-buckets by which you, you invest in or look for? I, I think there are several ways how you can kind of map or or slice the the market, and I think they are not mutually exclusive. And I think it's it's not like there is only one right way of of doing this. I, I think one is that you look at from a more technical point of view at the stack, and then you start at the very bottom with like more like infrastructure type software, um, or like database technologies, and, and so on, and then. You look at the next layer above this, and this could be like platform as a service providers or API focused companies or maybe developer tools. And then you move up and get into like the, the real applications. Um, but then you can also, I think, split it up by different use cases or industries and look at different verticals. Um, and, and then obviously there are some companies that aren't that much focused on a vertical, but focus on a specific business problem uh, across verticals. And then maybe yet another way of looking at it is by the size of the target customer. And this is something that we, at least one way that we also like to look at it and that you think about, is this a, a SaaS company that is hunting elephants or hunting whales to use an analogy that we that we like to use, kind of like inspired by salespeople who talk about like they've they found a great elephant or whale when they found a, a customer that's worth six or seven figures. And then on the other hand, you have SaaS companies that follow a really high velocity self-service SMB sales model. And then obviously we also have companies in between and you have companies 
uh, that start at one of the end of the market and then move up over time. Yeah, that makes sense. I can kind of jump in here as well. I think um, in terms of kind of zooming out in the broader B2B landscape, oftentimes you will talk to individuals who think about a very specific part of the stack, um, such as like infrastructure and security. That's where companies or are, are, um, products like AWS, Google Cloud Platform, like they're the leaders in infrastructure. And then when you think about new software companies entering this space, like you're actually competing against very large enterprise players from day one. Um, I think what's interesting, especially on the, the infrastructure and security side of things, like I probably spend less time in this space. However, you know, as you're talking to early stage startups, like you have these great platforms like AWS, they give free credits to startups, you know, they now give free office space in AD, AWS loft. And it would be really hard for a new startup to really disrupt an AWS or a Google Cloud platform. But I think when you look at some of the innovations that are happening in this space, like there's a lot happening in terms of like the way that we organize and manage and update infrastructure, like DigitalOcean is a great example of that. Um, and then I think when you move up the stack, there's also platform as a service. So many of you have probably heard, you know, we're living in the API economy. And I think that with APIs, like this is, you know, technology that's driving new innovations in all types of sectors and verticals. You know, when you give developers ways to build faster or improve the product experience, then everyone wins. Um, and we're seeing that in a number of ways. Like, I think oftentimes the most commonly used example for an API is Twilio. Um, and it turns out, you know, with Twilio, it's a very broad usage product. So, you know, many companies want to communicate with their customers in a better way, you know, whether that's Uber, Airbnb, like, Basically, every company could use a Twilio-like service uh, in one way, shape, or form, whether that's through call or text. But you can also get like very specialized as well. So I think like to Christoph's point, just being an investor in, in APIs or in infrastructure, uh, that's kind of not enough anymore because we're starting to see a lot more spe specialization. So I think a great example of that is um, we're seeing a lot happening in more of like the retail infrastructure space. Um, and we're seeing really interesting APIs like Lumi is an example, which is an API for packaging. Uh, Shippo is another example. Village Global, uh, you recently invested in a, a company called Ant, which is doing something similar as well. And then I think lastly, like what's interesting, and this is where Christoph and I spend most of our time, is really focused on software as a service. So workplace productivity. I'm very interested in companies that start with some um, sort of viral growth. So essentially, rather than having a top-down sale, they're actually growing virally within an organization. So Dropbox is a great example of this. Slack is a great example where a lot of traditional consumer best practices, as far as even like gaming mechanics and how do you get people to re-engage with your product, it has a more consumer spin, but it's something that's being implemented in the workplace. Yeah, Brian, we definitely love these types of companies as well because some of them find such an amazing, amazingly efficient way of getting to their customers, which is really something which, is, which didn't happen in the world of enterprise software, let's say 10 or 20 years ago. So, so if you can build a, a product that really appeals to the individual user or small groups of users and, and use that as an, as an intro to eventually do a, do an enterprise sale, this is I think this is amazing, and I, I think we've both both seen at at Zendesk um, how beautifully this can work. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think what's interesting too, especially on um, when it comes to more bottoms up SaaS companies, it's interesting to see the difference, the way this plays out uh, with a horizontal tool versus a vertical tool. So I'll, I'll explain. So in terms of having a more horizontal platform, what's interesting is that if you're solving a problem that's a company-wide problem, you can start to organically see um, your product land and expand within a large organization. And this is something you see a lot of times with workplace productivity tools. It's something that you can oftentimes see with um, management tools. Uh, like I know Village Global, you invested in a, a company called HumbleDot, which is a, a data-driven management tool. And what's interesting there is, you know, not only is it beneficial for the end user, who is someone who's giving updates to their manager, it's also something that a manager can then circulate up the ranks in, inside the company. And you start to see some, you know, organic and more natural virality within the organization happen there. I think what's interesting when you have a more verticalized solution like Zendesk, like Zendesk has a very specific buyer they sell to uh, customer support. And when you think about the use case for Zendesk is, you know, it's very focused in terms of the, the person or the team that you're selling into. But what's really interesting is you can actually start to see over time, basically a product lock-in that happens as customer support reps or managers move from company to company. And that's almost like a, a, a different type of land and expand where essentially you land within one company, you know, you train your entire team on a platform like Zendesk. And then as those individuals move to other companies, they take that tool with them, which is, is a really powerful metric as well. Christoph, in terms of uh, thinking about more verticalized SaaS, like I think there's an interesting uh, shift that I'm, I'm seeing at a, at a more macro level where I'm noticing a lot more applications being developed for hourly workers, or I think there's a broader trend towards the gig economy. How do you evaluate businesses that have a more narrow and focused buyer, such as legal, finance, 1099 contractors, are there different ways that you actually analyze those SaaS companies? And how do you determine if one will, you know, be have more of a venture outcome? Or are they potentially, you know, what you've called a, a non VC compatible SaaS company? Yeah, sure. I mean, that is always hard to predict, right? And then we can uh, dig a little bit deeper into that. But in in general, we're very open and about investing in vertical SaaS companies. And in, in fact, one of the very first SaaS companies that we invested in is a Canadian company by the name of Clio, which is now the leading cloud-based software in the legal industry for uh, small and, and mid-sized law practices. And I think targeting a vertical has some advantages, but potentially also some disadvantages. I think the, the main advantage is that you know exactly who your target audience is. So you know usually how to find them, where to find them, what language to speak, and you can really tailor product exactly to the needs of, of those target customers. So for example, to, to use that example again, like the, the customers of, of Clio, they, they would never use a piece of software that is not made specifically for them, or at least Clio would always win against a generic software offering that is not as tailored to the needs of, of lawyers. At the same time, then I think one of the questions that you have to ask yourself as a founder or um, and or as an investor is is obviously how how big is that vertical? Is that big enough to build a nice profitable company? Or is it even big enough to build a, a very large company, like kind of like the companies which uh, VCs are aspiring to to invest? 
and and that always depends on really the the details of the specific industry and what kind of wallet share can can you get in that industry and what do the expansion opportunities to maybe other countries or other industries look like but i think it generally in general if you invest in a company in one vertical i think you cannot assume or you shouldn't take for granted that the company will be able to copy or basically do the same in another vertical because the, the, really the advantage of being so focused on one vertical means that you really understand that vertical but that doesn't translate to understanding another vertical so i think you have to think about like is how big is the company that you can build in in that initial vertical maybe by and like expansion opportunities are then maybe increases of pricing or or diff to get to different geographies but then like different verticals um i think are maybe a bit of a stretch then so this is maybe not something which i would include in my initial market size calculation yeah that makes a lot of sense i think it's interesting too because with um these more niche verticals like you can go a lot deeper in terms of solving a real need like i think what's interesting is when you look at the actual feature set like you can tell that they're very much more customized for a certain vertical like it's it's oftentimes a lot easier from a user acquisition perspective because you have a very focused buyer i think one of the questions that i have is oftentimes i th i think early on especially for early stage saas companies there is a lot of pressure to build partner integrations and to really build out build you know thinking about having not just a, a solo standalone product but building a, a platform sooner rather than later um like i worked on the zendesk apps marketplace for a while we had over 650 partner applications and you know when you talk to early stage startups there is a lot of pressure to build you know a, a more robust product sooner rather than later How do you think about that from an early stage as an investor? Like, do you, you know, encourage these more verticalized tools to really invest in, um, like, partnerships? Like, should they think about channel partnerships? And I think at what point do you start actually building these tech integrations to turn it from a, a single product into more of like a broader usage platform? Yeah, and who do you think does this pressure come from when you? mention uh, Brian like the the pressure to become a platform do you think this is something which investors expect or rather like some kind of forces in the marketplace or our customers um, can you give me some additional color on that great question um i see this more so when it's moving up market so as you start to go after more of a mid market buyer or you want to land a large enterprise account i think there's a lot of unique considerations in saas where essentially you need to understand how your current solution connects to other tools uh, that they're using already. Right, right. I I, th I think in the beginning and that probably means like the first couple of years, I think there is probably really only one very strong reason why you would want to integrate with other products and and this is because it makes a product better or it's something which the customer wants. And like the kind of integrations then obviously depend very much on the type of customer and what other tools they use. And if you have a SaaS product targeting SMBs, then probably it's not that difficult. Maybe then the other products are like applications from the Google uh, Gmail um, ecosystem or 
and maybe some other tools that you can maybe even connect with something like Zapier in, in the very beginning before you eventually build native applications as you go up market to like mid-market enterprise companies or very large enterprise companies that is dramatically more difficult right so that's a completely different challenge than like if you are in an early stage uh, startup and and you find out your product needs to integrate with NetSuite or or even SAP this is obviously that's a, that's a huge challenge back to my previous point the reason why i mentioned that I think that really product should define whether or not you want to invest resources into a partnership like this is that in terms of distribution, what we've seen is that usually it doesn't work as well as you think, at least in the in the beginning. It doesn't mean that you should not integrate with other products. And it's obviously, it's nice if you get featured in somebody else's newsletter, but I think sometimes people have like too optimistic opti uh, expectations in terms of how much distribution they can get from a partnership like this or from a channel partnership or some kind of reseller. I think in SaaS, it, it's very rare that, that this works until a significantly later stage in the journey, um, basically at a time when you still like it, you still benefit, but it's not it's not really as critical anymore. So I think you have to get a certain amount of traction and demand and brand recognition basically yourself. And you, you cannot in any way kind of outsource this to, to, to anybody else. Yeah, that's great. It's really interesting because you're one of the earliest investors in Zendesk, Algolia, Front, Contentful, a really strong portfolio and investing at a very early stage. Can you spend some time or can you tell us a little bit more about you know, how do you identify great SaaS companies early on? And like, what are some data points that you look for if many of these companies have relatively low traction? Yeah, uh, this is a difficult question. I, we, we don't have a, definitely don't have any perfect answers or, or silver bullets there. So when, when we look at companies, it's, it's indeed true that most of the time there is no very significant traction. So this is, we don't invest at the, at a series A or series B or later stages. It's it's always at the seed stage. So if it's an a company that is targeting bigger deals, then what's they might typically maybe have a couple of pilots or maybe some POCs going on or some paid pilots. But it, it's pretty limited in terms of commercial proof or attraction. And if it's a company that is targeting SMBs or, or freelancers or like companies um, on, on the lower end of the ACV spectrum, then it does get sometimes a little more quantitative. And if that is the case, then we obviously we, we look at all the data and we we try to see if we can draw any conclusions from uh, funnel metrics, early indications regarding churn, NPS, referrals, and so on. But it, it's also true that we often look at companies at a stage where really the data isn't meaningful at all. So, so tr and, and tr trying to read too much into the data uh, would really mean we would just like fool ourselves and, and we would develop a kind of like a, a wrong sense of, of accuracy that doesn't really exist. So at these very early stages, it's probably as much art as it is science. If we try to identify a SaaS company with 
a lot of potential. And I think the things we're looking for in general aren't very different from what other investors like, like you guys look for. So we obviously look for big markets, great founders, great products, unique insights. So I think we, we all look at somewhat similar things, but maybe we give sometimes different weightings to different factors. And maybe there are a few things which, which helped us, at least helped us in the past, maybe to develop conviction for a company at a stage where maybe others haven't been able to do this yet. And I think one of these elements is that we've always felt very strongly about the differentiation that can come from a great brand and, and great design. Actually, what impressed me so much about Zendesk really 10 years ago when Zendesk was a company that consisted of three founders starting the company in a loft in Copenhagen and they had a handful of customers, but not more. But what I really fell in love with was that the product looked so amazing and the, the website looked beautiful and, and they had the Buddha and they were able to convey um, a, a great message in a, in a very unique way. So everything around product and design and, and, and message and, and brand that, that resonated very well with me. And um, it was similar in the case of, uh, for example, Typeform, which is maybe something which you could easily dismiss as another form builder, which can't be that hard to build, right? But from day one, they've managed to have a very unique new way how they thought about data collection online. And Meanwhile, if you like, if you see a type from online, you probably recognize it, right? So it's it's a very unique user interface, and this was again one of the things that we liked from the get go, and maybe one element which maybe other investors care a little bit less about. Yeah, that's great. I think Typeform is a really good example. I think the um, you know, it has a very clean UI. I think in terms of the way you answer questions, it feels like they're very early in terms of having more of a conversation. It's a more of like a conversational experience rather than having like a true survey, which I really like about the product. I think one question I have with maybe using Typeform as an example, um, you know, how important is you know, competition or thinking about product defensibility. Um, what were some? What was some of your thoughts in terms of like really digging into Typeform, knowing that there were already a number of solutions already readily available and, and more widely known in the ecosystem. So when we saw Typeform, we really got the, the the sense that what they've built is this classical like 10x better product, and it it obviously it was not nearly at that time it wasn't nearly feature complete like it couldn't compete with survey monkey or other established form builders or survey tools for many maybe most of the use cases and because like survey monkey even at that time has already been a big company and typeform was like the result of the work of maybe two or three persons so like if you looked at it from a, like a feature matrix point of view it wouldn't have looked good but there were some very unique elements. And, and you mentioned already about the way you ask and answer questions with Typeform, which is a much more human conversational way. So th this is one of the things, of, yeah, one of the most important things that we, we saw there. And, and we 
at that time we we haven't seen it in in any of the competitors and and we thought this is is pretty unique and at the same time it is of course something which others can copy but it it also told us that the founders of typeform david and robert um, had a very unique vision of this and 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 it kind of it made us confident that even if somebody else copied what typeform had at that time by the time typeform would already be one or two steps ahead and and this is actually what turned out to be exactly what happened in this case yeah it's interesting i think with typeform in addition to really liking the product experience i think when you look at a lot of workplace collaboration tools if you look at something like typeform i'm oftentimes very interested in companies that have some element of um, like value-based virality and what I mean by that is when you complete a type form, the experience is so beautiful, so easy to use that, you know, there's a high percentage of people who actually take the survey that then become customers. Um, and we see this a lot with, you know, email scheduling tools. Like I think Calendly is a great example. Um, how many folks have, you know, used Calendly and then later started using it for themselves. Like I think seeing that sort of cross-company virality is really compelling. Um, so I do agree. I think like when you have a great UI and when you have a product that's very easy to use, it's great to, to actually track like how does that product grow virally through um, introducing new people to that product. So I think that's super interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Typeform has never spent any significant amounts of money on like paid advertising or the like. So what what really drove all the adoption is the built-in virality and the strong NPS and, and organic growth. And I think if, if you can make that viral engine work, it, it's very, very rare. It's, I would almost describe it as like the, the holy grail of, of, of custom acquisition. But if you can make that work, then you've really hit something. And I think it's no, it's no coincidence that Slack and, and Dropbox, which both have a very strong virality built into the product because you have an incentive to share the product because it becomes more valuable if, if you use it with more uh, with more of your colleagues or your co-workers it's no surprise that these two companies the SaaS companies that have the the highest growth rates of of, of all some SaaS companies ever built yeah i agree that makes a lot of sense do you feel like i, I think when it comes to more bottoms up SaaS? You know, I think that it's awesome, you know, once you have this sort of rally built into product, that's great. However, I think what's interesting is, you know, when I talk to a lot of early stage startups, oftentimes sales isn't part of their consideration set yet. Uh, you typically talk to very product minded founders or two highly technical co-founders. At what point do you encourage companies to think about a sales team or, you know, think about customer success? Are there certain parts of the organization where when you meet two highly technical co-founders, like... When do you actually encourage them to start thinking about, you know, a more traditional B2B go-to-market? Right. Yeah. I think it's probably maybe the dream, if you will, of of especially like very techy or very product-oriented founders that they basically don't need to do any marketing and sales. That the product basically sells itself. But this is very rare. Like if you have a truly viral product, like Typeform or maybe Slack or, or Dropbox, then this can give you the initial traction. And even then, it doesn't mean that you don't need to layer on marketing and sales eventually. 
But the truth is also that most products aren't viral. So you have to think about how do you sell the product? How do you, how do you market it? And then the question becomes, if selling is really something which the founders don't like to do at all because they, they are like, like they, they like to develop products and, and they are techy and, but they just don't like to, to sell. I think that can be a challenge because, and this is something which, Jason Lemkin has has famously and and really excellently written about about the difficulty of hiring a VP of sales and finding the right person for the right stage. It's a highly recommended article if you Google uh, like the 48 types of VP of sales. Yeah, I think that article should come up. But the, the takeaway is that if you are at an early stage and you are trying to hire an experienced VP of sales from a from a big company, then at the early stage, this is almost certainly not going to to work out because the experienced VP of sales of a large company, if he or she is good, then almost by definition, he or she won't join your risky early stage startup. And so at the early stages, either you you find a very entrepreneurial person who can join you almost as a late co-founder or you basically have to do it yourself. So, and I think this is what we have successfully seen in several companies, including Algolia and Contentful, where the founders all came up as engineers. So they're extremely uh, intelligent, extremely uh, technically skilled people, but they don't have any sales. They didn't have any prior sales experience, but they were basically forced to be the leading salesperson in the company or the first VP of sales of the company for quite some time. Well, actually, I think in Algolia had this luck of having somebody who, yeah, is almost like a late founder who who joined with sales experience but even in the even in case of algolia the founders played a big big role in in sales early on and similar in case of contentful and probably other companies so in the beginning founders just have to kind of almost bend realities and and make things happen in in ways which normal people aren't able to do Chris, zoom me out a little bit. I just want to get a sense of where you think opportunities lie right now. And two ways to ask that are one is if you were starting a company today and you had any uh, any set of skills, uh, where within SaaS would you would you look to, to build a company? Or, or another way of asking it is, what is your sort of request for startups? Where, where do you think there's opportunity that's underexplored or where you're looking to, to, to make investments that you want entrepreneurs to, to go pursue? And feel free to use the categories you mentioned earlier as, as scaffolding or, or go wherever. Yeah, sure. I don't think we have a great list of like requests for startups. I, I don't think we are particularly good at spotting individual gaps in the markets or, or opportunities. I mean, we have some like broader ideas and, and thoughts on, on how the market might develop. And we are we're very excited about everything that's happening in machine learning and, and AI. And we think that like the next generation of enterprise software will be much, much more intelligent. But it's really the founders who identify a certain gap in the market or a certain problem that nobody else has solved because of their domain expertise or because of some special insight. And, and that leads to, to great companies. So no matter if I think about Zendesk, um, Algolia, Contentful, Typeform, all the companies that we spoke about in this 
a podcast already or or pretty much any other company it's none of these is a case where a vc sitting at his desk and mapping the market would have been able to spot this opportunity it's it's always been the case that the opportunity has been spotted by somebody because of a very unique combination of experience um, insight and, and skill like for example Mikkel, the founder of uh, zendesk he he was working with like legacy help desk software and he saw all the problems and and struggles with it and then he came up with the idea and some of the other co-founders also had like very very relevant experience to that but it, it wasn't obvious at all to somebody who wasn't from that industry that there is a a big need to do to do something new and was very similar in in all of the other cases so like long long story short i we don't assume that we will come up with the specific ideas or opportunities at a somewhat higher level one of the areas where um i like i personally wish somebody kind of finally brings in um, a lot of innovation is is healthcare because at least in in Germany where I live or where I spend most of my time and I think it's not that different in many other countries like the the state of the art of um, how processes are managed everything from booking appointments to transmitting information from one place to another in in healthcare this this feels like in in many ways this is like this industry hasn't arrived yet in in the in the, in the century um, like people still sending faxes around and then you go to a doctor and you have to to wait hours for your appointment and, and and all of that so this is an area where personally i hope a lot of innovation is going to happen over the next couple of years at the, at the same time i also know that this is an extremely hard maybe probably one of the hardest industries to to sell into because a lot of people have tried but haven't 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 have managed to do it yet do you have something that would be in your not to do list in terms of hey the space is too crowded and you know we just don't want to get involved anymore or we don't think that the space has venture backable outcomes and how would you say that the answer to either of these questions you know opportunities for white space or you know anti-white space in terms of space that are too crowded how has that evolved over the years yeah, I think there are some areas where when we see like a yet another pitch deck, we, we don't get particularly excited because we've seen too many of them. Um, and maybe an example of this would be like, you know, manage your Twitter feed or your Instagram presence or your influencers on platform X, Y, Z. This is an area where I'm personally not super excited about because I've just seen so many of them and it's... I haven't really seen the differentiation. At the same time, it's entirely possible that there is a startup out there that is building something super exciting in that space, and I just don't see it, or I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to to really understand it until they prove me wrong. So I, I would never say never to any of these areas, but it's there are areas where, at least with a superficial look, we are. Maybe where it's harder for us to to get excited than than others. Are there any new platforms that you're particularly excited about SaaS applications? Like, is there anything interesting at the intersection of AR, VR, and SaaS or, or blockchain and SaaS that you're particularly excited about? I think not not really. Um, I mean, we blockchain and, and and crypto is something that some of my 
colleagues um, is, are spending a lot of time on, but it, it still feels pretty early to us. So we're still, I think, early on in terms of really developing a, a thesis there. And I guess it's somewhat similar to AR and, and, and VR. I think it's incredibly fascinating and I have no doubt that VR and, and also AR is going to truly revolutionize many industries in in some years. I don't know how many years, but if you just think about like how video graphics and video games and so on have developed over the last 10 to 20 years and try to extrapolate that a little more, then I think it's it's not, uh, it's pretty obvious that amazing things are going to happen there. But it's for us in terms of finding companies that we think are at the right stage to benefit from this, especially with a B2B use case. It's it, it might still be a bit too early, but at the same time, we're very interested in this and um, very open to uh, talking to companies in that space. Chris, how do you think about like looking at the future? What's what's next? What are you most excited about? What's sort of the next opportunity in software aiding the world? That's a good good question, Eric. I, I wish I knew the answer. And I, 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 again, I think we will. We probably don't know it until we see it. Or hopefully, when we see it, because we hear about it from an entrepreneur, then hopefully we will have a chance to to identify that. I think, like really broadly speaking, even though you and and Brian and and and, and me were Basically, we've completely SaaSified our lives already, right? Like, so we we use SaaS applications day in and and day out, uh, but we're also kind of like part of the the echo chamber. So, if you look at if you go go beyond that and look at a somewhat bigger uh, population, then then SaaS is still a relatively new thing. Like, believe it or not, but about half of the dollars spent on software in the enterprise world at least still go to on on premise um uh, software so there is i think there is still a lot of a lot of opportunity like as as software moves from the desktop and from desk from legacy systems to the cloud maybe there are even more opportunities in additional use cases which nobody um has thought about before human beings are still wasting so much time with inefficient processes, whether it's based on pen and paper or because it's because they use like generic software like Word, Excel, Outlook to solve business problems and, and the software isn't really made for this. So I think there are plenty of opportunities to build software um, that uh, allows humans to uh, become more efficient, waste less time on on boring, repetitive tasks. And then if you think about the impact of machine learning and, and AI, then you can really think about how, how this could be taken to the to the next level. And um, maybe UiPath, a company which you probably have heard about, is a is a great example of of that where a company has has managed to build a a product, and for those of uh, the the listeners who haven't heard about it, UiPath is a company um, out of Romania. We're not an investor, unfortunately, which uh, is in the so-called uh, robotic process, business process automation space, and they built software robots, at least the way I I understand it, that 
automate highly repetitive tasks. And apparently the, the solution um, allows people to save so much money, so much time that they've uh, developed in the last one or two years and an unbelievable amount of, of traction. And I think this is also not something which um, anybody has had, ha has had on their map uh, until a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like I'm, I'm seeing a lot happening in workplace automation space. And I think, you know, even zooming out and saying, you know, how do we think about the future of work, whether that's developer education or the future of education? Like, I think it's very interesting to think about, you know, by 2020, there will be 1.4 uh, more software jobs uh, than applicants who can fill them. So I've spent some time even thinking about, you know, what does that next class of work look like? And how do we train more people to become software engineers? I think it's also interesting, like Christoph mentioned, you know, a lot of these inefficiencies that exist within a workplace. I think that when you start to have, you know, very deep conversations with individual teams within an organization, like I'll use uh, customer support uh, since I was most recently at Zendesk, you know, there, even with, uh, you know, Zendesk being 10 years old, there's still a number of internal processes within large organizations where, um, you know, customer support agents, they, they just need more access to data or they, it's hard for them to find the information that they need. Um, because over time, you know, large companies are using all of these different products internally. Um, some people have access to certain files and some people do not. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done in, uh, in B2B. And, you know, when you think about the future of work, it's, How do we really um, start to automate processes and, and make people's day-to-day -day more efficient? But I think also, how do we give them access to more information? So Eric, we're, we're both in a company called Forethought. And I think Forethought is such an interesting application where, you know, by connecting all of your internal systems, like basically to help people be better at their job, they need more information and they need tools to help them be more effective, which, you know, I'm really optimistic and, and love the work that Forethought's doing in that area. Christoph, one, one question for you in terms of like understanding uh, the SaaS uh, investing landscape. How is your investment philosophy different from, you know, other SaaS investors? So we recently had Josh Stein on the podcast. Uh, Josh Stein's at DFJ. Uh, he's also an investor in front as well. Uh, maybe, you know, Jason Lemkin, who you, who you quoted earlier. How does your uh, philosophy differ from, from some of the other SaaS investors? Yeah. So I think I have a decent understanding of the types of companies which Jason is looking for because we, we know each other quite well. I, I don't know uh, Josh as well, so I, I can't speak much about the differences to Josh's investment philosophy. I'm, I'm assuming he's investing slightly or somewhat later stage, but um, um, I can't really speak about that. Um, as far as Jason is concerned, I think his, his sweet spot are companies between the seed and the series A, um, which have a decent amount of product market fit, a handful or maybe two handful of enterprise or like significant customers, but who are not quite at the stage yet, who are maybe a bit rough around the edges in one way or another. Um, so they're not quite at the, at the series A stage, stage yet. And where we come in is actually like, one stage or let's say half a stage um, earlier than that. So this is how we are different from Jason or what, what, what Sastro does. A apart from that, I think if you, if you look at like a, a number of other details that we probably differ 
a little bit as well. I think we already, I already mentioned like our passion for and our conviction for design and user experience as a, as a differentiator and, and actually even something that can give a company a surprising amount of long-term moat. I'm not sure if Jason subscribes to, to that view. I think we ag agree on, on most things. I'm not sure if we also agree on, on that one. And that then, I mean, he, and, and you should invite him to the show if you haven't yet. Uh, he, so he, because he, he should uh, answer the, answer the question. He can answer the question much better himself. But I think because of his background as an really experienced SaaS operator, having built EcoSign, he also has a very unique point of view of how he looks at, at enterprise software. And I think probably that made him invest in, in TalkDesk, for example, which, um, is an uh, amazing company and I'm sure he has some secrets also, which he hasn't told anybody about. Cool. Maybe, maybe in closing, uh, you just, uh, released a new post. Uh, there's more than one path to a hundred million. Which is, uh, maybe you can unpack some of the ideas there, which is sort of an ode to, to everyone's fan favorite five paths to a hundred million dollar revenue business. Yeah. I'm happy to, happy to talk about that. So, what, what triggered this post is that I think in the VC world, there is this, I don't know, concept, notion, maybe almost consensus about how fast companies have to grow in order to be really exciting and, and attractive. Like we, about a year ago, we, we surveyed about 60 other SaaS investors about that and asked them questions like, um, like, what are you looking for in a SaaS company and what kind of growth rates get you excited? And the responses that we got to that were like they direction at least they supported this growth path, which has become known as the T2D3 path. And, and the idea behind that is that uh, the best SaaS companies, it, that it takes them about one or two years to 2 million in ARR and then they triple in the next 12 months and then they triple again and then they double, double, double and then they are at about 140, $144 million in, in ARR if you do the math after like seven, seven years or so. So it, it's true that some companies have followed that path. Um, Dropbox or Slack, they have maybe grown even faster and then Zendesk has more or less followed that path and, and box and, and, and a couple of others. But what, what I was wondering about is if, if it's really good advice to the vast majority of SaaS companies that they should grow that fast. Because obviously, if you can grow at that pace, that's, that's fantastic. And if you really manage to grow alongside like these, um, like, this concept, then you're basically, you're building a unicorn. But at the same time, I think this usually comes at a pretty high cost. And I think in the best case, the cost means you raise, you have, you, you have to burn a lot of money, but you also, because you grow so fast, you can also raise it at attractive valuation. So in the end, it, it's, it's not a big problem, but I think it can be a problem if you raise money and you accumulate or you build up a pretty high burn rate and you really build up the company and staff the company for that type of growth, 
but then for some for some reason and there can many can be many reasons which can lead to this you're just growing a little bit slower and if you then don't triple in a year but you grow only 2x or 2.5x with 2.5x which in and of itself is also not not bad at all then you suddenly are looking at a gap between your expense base and your and your revenues which 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 drastically widens and which means that you are you, you suddenly have a much shorter runway and so you have to raise money sooner and at the same time your growth rate isn't where you expected it to be so that's kind of like a a, a double whammy then and so and that made me think that maybe for most SaaS companies it's better advice to grow just a little bit slower i mean you still want to get to this magical 100 million arr mark within let's say 10 years if you if you want to become really big and if you um, like want to be like kind of like the typical venture case but if you give yourself one or two or three extra years of, of getting there it means that the growth rates that you have to achieve per year are significantly lower and i think that that might be better for for many if not most companies and then to verify if that is actually a viable path i've actually looked at the development the, the revenue developments of the like 60 or so largest saas companies and and this is this isn't published yet i'm going to publish it in the next in the next couple of days but what what i've seen there is that actually the majority of the saas companies of the best saas companies and we're talking here really about unicorns they didn't get to 100 million within six or seven years. Most of them took eight years, nine years, 10 years. So you have a, a number, like dozens of unbelievably successful SaaS companies, all worth a billion or more, but it didn't take them just six or seven years. And so I think this is encouraging for, for SaaS entrepreneurs who struggle to maybe meet the expectations of the investment community right now. So it, it's maybe encouraging from, for them to know that you can become an extremely successful, extremely large company, even if you're growing just a little bit slower. Cool. I, th I think that's a good note to end on. Christoph, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Brian. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 